And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virtual Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today as we dive into explaining defending the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And, man, we got a great show in store for us today because, uh, well, you know, um, we had the March for Life uh, last week. And so we're going to continue on a pro-life stance, and we're going to talk about why the church is pro-life and help us do that. We're going to have Father Christopher Alar on, and I know all of you love Father Alar's work. He's just doing a bang-up job and uh, on the Internet and social media and just all around. Uh, I love talking to him because very practical, very insightful, and he's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we are going to do our Finding the Fallacies and Meet an Early Church Father. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the Incomplete Comparison Fallacy. And also, the Early Church Father we're going to meet is a pretty obscure, I would <laughs> I would hasten to say, uh, practically unknown Early Church Father, and that is Paulus Orsius. Paulus Orsius. Yes, he is amongst the early church fathers. We'll learn a little bit more about Paulus in a few seconds. But first, I want to welcome all of you to the show, beginning with my live stream audience. Hi, everyone. Also, I want to welcome all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world, either through our handy-dandy phone app or through our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. And I was just on the website, noticed uh, yet another great conference is on the queue, and you want to check it out. Uh, it is Marriage and Family Conference. It's going to be with Mary Delano Barber and Terry Barber and also Dr. Louise Sandoval. Um, and uh, you can get all the details. That's going to be May 7th. So you have a little bit of time. But if you've learned your lesson from the Spiritual Warfare Conference, okay, uh, when it comes to Virgin Most Powerful Conferences, you need to get your name in quick and get that settled because uh, it, it sells out and uh, it's extremely popular. So just get all the info right there on virginmostpowerfulradio.org and, you know, be there. Don't be square. And especially, you know, marriage and family. Man, uh, talk about uh, an area of life that's really under assault. Uh, we really need to be forearmed and also to... Uh, to know that there's, we're not alone. That's that's important thing is we're not alone. I know when I first started apologetics, uh, it was pretty lonely because uh, this was back in the early '90s, and uh, there weren't Catholics who were into apologetics back then. This is when Carl Keating was just kind of getting Catholic answers off the ground, and uh, man, my the only friends I had were anti-Catholics, and that was kind of tough because it, I felt like. You know, just this uh, person out in the middle of nowhere uh, defending the faith because fellow Catholics couldn't understand why I, I was making such a big deal about, you know, discussing the faith with others. Because that was back in the early 90s. Now, 
apologetics is mainstream and uh, it's nice to be comforted. But I remember way back when, and this is the point of this <laughs> discourse, is uh, going to the Franciscan University of Steubenville's Defending the Faith Conference. And man, that was a shot in the arm because when you get to fellowship with people who are like-minded, who uh, see this as important and know you're not alone, you're not some isolated kook on the fringe, but you know, there's a lot of really great Catholics out there that love defending the faith. That was a huge shot in the arm for me. And so I always felt like it, it was, uh, I was on the front lines, you know, in the trenches uh, g doing battle. And I always felt like these conferences served as R&R, &R, you know, just to get some R&R &R and get my spiritual batteries recharged. And then I was fired up to go back into the trenches again. And in a way, that's kind of like where we are today, especially in areas of family life and marriage and things like that. It's more important than ever that you you take those little R&Rs because we're finding ourselves in the trenches and just rejuvenate yourself. Get, get loaded up with great info, um, get to rub elbows with like-minded people. And so uh, that's why I yeah, COVID, I think, especially was tough for those in the trenches because uh, we couldn't take leave because uh, we couldn't fellowship, basically. But now all that stuff is, seems to be behind us. Um, we're going to be doing conferences. And so please take advantage of Virgin Most Powerful Radio's conferences. They are great. And uh, like I said, if, you're not, if your batteries aren't charged after one of our conferences, then uh, you need to get a new battery, I guess. Uh, let's see, anything else? I can't think of anything at the moment. By the way, I'm going to be speaking this summer at um, the uh, uh, St. Paul's uh, Institute, Scott Hans Group, uh, at Steubenville this summer. And I'll give you more details when that gets closer, but just FYI. I'm going to be talking on the Deuteral Canon, so that's going to be a lot of fun. All right, so enough about that. Let's go to our Finding the Fallacy for today, which is the Incomplete Comparison Fallacy. An incomplete comparison is a misleading argument that's popular in advertising. For example, an advertiser might say product X is better. This is an incomplete assertion, uh, so it can't be refuted. In grammar... An incomplete comparison is a comparison that leaves out one item, one of the items that's being compared. In other words, it's a, a relative term that isn't anchored onto something concrete, and therefore it really is meaningless. But if you had a choice between buying two products and one was 50% better and one didn't say anything, I think you would automatically get the 50% better even though it might not tell you what is 50% better than, right? Just because we gravitate to things like that. But you think about it, 50% better than what? If it's 50% better than chewing on nails, then that's not really that great of a product, is it? So uh, what it's being compared to is so important. And I, I think this was really popular when I was a kid, um, you would see packages labeled with such things as 50% better, less fattening, all this other stuff. And there never was a reference to what it was being compared to. However, I think advertising laws have changed. And so at least you'll get an asterisk and, and you have to anchor it down into some sort of factual assertion. Um, but nevertheless, um, just be aware 
of whenever somebody has a relative term that isn't anchored into something concrete, uh, you just have to realize, you know, someone is trying to pull the wool over your eyes by trying to manipulate you into accepting or rejecting something. So <clears throat> keep that in mind. And by the way, you know, if I got to mention, please tell your friends about the show. If you enjoy the show, tell them that hands-on apologetics is 50% better. There we go. <laughs> and that's our finding the fallacy for today. The incomplete comparison fallacy. Now, let's meet our early church father for today. As you know, you veterans who listen to this show often, um, and I call my regular listeners veterans, um, you know every show we take a look at uh, early church father, learn a little bit of their bio, because all the early church fathers are important in that they are, are witnesses to the ancient faith. So the writings many times will explicitly talk about the faith, or they'll just assume something that is part of the faith at that time. So the early church fathers are really important to know because they're witnesses to the early church and the first belief of Christians. So we could trace our Catholic doctrines back through history by the early church fathers. So it isn't enough just to be able to know a few quotes from them. It's really good if you can give some biographical material to show who they were how they were situated to know the faith and, uh, you know, when they lived and so on and so forth, who, who they were taught by, um, you know, all those factors uh, go into this. So let's talk a little bit about Paulus, uh, Paulus Orsius, our early church father for today. Orsius is generally counted as a Spanish priest, though, in fact, his birthplace has most likely been uh, Baraca or Braga in Portugal, uh, fleeing before the Vandals, he came in 414 AD to Hippo, and this is North Africa, where he presented to St. Augustine his uh, commendatorium on the heirs of the Priscillianist and the Originist. Uh, he asked Augustine to use the outline of heirs for writing a major refutation. Augustine's response was his ad orsium presbyter against the Priscillianist and Originist Book One. Uh, sorry, I'm just on the fly translating Latin here. Uh, Augustine was very much taken by the abilities of Orsius and sent him to Bethlehem in 415 AD to consult with Jerome on the question of the origin of the soul, and likewise to warn Jerome about the about Pelagius, who had uh, lately gone to Palestine at Bethlehem. In the same year, Orsius wrote his book on apologetics, and Orsius had been there less than a year in Palestine when he left, intending to return back to Spain, arriving at the island of Minacora. Uh, uh, reports of wars and barbarian atrocities in Spain frightened him off, and he instead uh, went to Hippo and to Augustine, and at Hippo, that's where he wrote his best-known work, which is its history against the pagans in seven books. And after 418 AD, we hear him no more. So whether he died in Africa or did finally return to Spain, we simply don't know. And that's our early church father for today, Paulus Orsius. And coming up next, we're going to be chatting with Father Alar, talking about why the church is pro-life. Stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. And we're going to talk about why the church is pro-life with Father Chris Alar. Father uh, is a priest of the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. He uh, is, wrote and produced the popular Divine Mercy 101 and Explain the Faith DVD series. He's also the author of best-selling books. After Suicide, uh, there, there is hope for them and for you, as well as the Understanding Divine Mercy. He's a regular host and guest on EWTN. And he serves as Father Joseph M.I.C., the director of the Association of Marian Helpers and is the head of Marian Press located on the grounds of the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And Father Aylor, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Hello, Gary. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to have you back in the studio. And uh, so how are you doing? Are you, You're back in Massachusetts again? Yeah, yeah. we've been um, busy this last week with the pro-life, uh, with March, uh, the March, and with uh, doing mm-hmm. our um, our talks and, and educational series on, on pro-life, you can find them on our YouTube channel uh, called Divine Mercy. We've been doing different uh, uh, programming, and we just had one on our EWTN show, which is uh, aired last Wednesday called Living Divine Mercy, about some incredible stories of why the church is pro-life and some amazing stories of some people who've lived it. So, yeah, we've been busy this last week or so with the uh, anniversary 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So uh, the topic today is very interesting. Why is the Catholic Church pro-life? It's amazing that somebody would even ask the question, in my humble opinion. Yeah, well... But but there are people. uh, uh, Catholics for pro-choice booming that light on the Basilica there in Washington, D.C. I think it just shows even that much more question as to... uh, uh, why we aren't getting that message out there to, to everyone. But um, luckily, the bishop there had a strong statement um, for that, and uh, they were trying to uh, uh, project up onto the basilica the, the message that uh, Catholics are in favor of, of abortion, which is absurd. But that is um, not uncommon. So we are doing our best to try to express why the church is pro-life because we can't change minds if we don't change hearts so we try to we try to get that as as one of our our missionary um objectives yeah yeah absolutely yeah and uh yeah it's ironic that uh they had to be outside the church in the cold and use smoke and mirrors to get their message you know yeah yeah uh kind of telling um, so, yeah. yeah, so where do we start? How, how do we start to defend uh, the church as pro-life? Well, I think the first thing that we have to understand is we just celebrated, I guess, no, celebrated is not the right term, um, recognized the 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Um, it's, a, it's a moment of sadness, uh, actually, um, a moment of but it's got to continue to be a time of remembrance because the second that we let it just pass into history and we don't keep it at the forefront is when we, we lose the, the battle. But I think it's, it's important to recognize, because I've talked about this before, you know, um, 
On 9-11, almost about around 3,000 people lost their lives. Well, abortion kills more than that in the United States every two days. Hmm. And so, you know, and now we know that in one year, um, abortion kills more in the womb than all the battle deaths of all the U.S. wars combined. So, you know, you're thinking in one year more die by um, by uh, ab- being aborted than all the battlefield deaths of all the U.S. wars combined. And so we really have to look at this. Since Roe v. Wade back in 1973, over 60 million um, have lost their lives. Now compare that, as horrible as the Holocaust was, the Holocaust, 6 million Jews were killed. So abortions killed 10 times more than the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And rightfully so, we anybody you even mentioned the Holocaust, it's an outrage. You know, how could this happen? Well, abortion has killed since Roe v. Wade 10 times the amount of the Holocaust. But I think what's interesting, Gary, to me is when you look at what this case is about, um, and I don't want to get into the legalities of it, but I, I want to get to the point that I think is, is most interesting. Back in 1971, when Norma McCorvey, um, who's then the the Roe part, Jane Roe. Um, she filed in the Dallas County Courts against Henry Wade. So that's where you get Roe v. Wade because she was given the alias Jane Roe, and, but Henry Wade was really the district attorney there. And it was about a law, Texas law, prohibiting um, uh, abortion except to save a woman's life. Now, here's what's fascinating about it. Um, the, the, we know the Supreme Court ended up legalizing abortion then on January 22nd, which we just passed, and that was 49 years ago. But, you know, Norma McCorvey, who was that Jane Roe, she ended up filing um, a motion in the U.S. District Court in Dallas to overturn it. Um, she got over a thousand affidavits from women who say they regret it and that, you know, the severe risks, depending upon what procedure you have, but breast cancer, uterine damage, complications, you know, in future pregnancy, even death. Um, And then the British Journal of Psychiatry has laid out clearly that there's 138% higher risk of mental health problems, you know, compared to women who have, um, have given birth. But anyway, that all aside, I don't want to just throw a bunch of statistics. I think what is most important is is what I'm about to mention now. Um, the Roe v. Wade decision is is defended on the basis of ignorance. Now, I'm not saying that people are ignorant who don't agree with me. The argument that is laid out is based um, illogically. Now, what do I mean by that? Okay, the justice in that majority opinion. His name was Justice Blackman. Now, to me, what you're about to hear, I don't know why every Catholic is not shouting this from the rooftops and why people are not holding the courts accountable. But what I'm about to say to me is utterly fascinating. And and it's this. Justice Blackman stated in the majority opinion of Roe v. Wade Quote, at this point, in the development of man's knowledge, we cannot resolve the difficult question of when life begins. Now, he said, quote, 
if this suggestion of fetal personhood is ever established, meaning if it's ever determined that the fetus is a person, he said the case in support of legal abortion collapses. For the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the 14th Amendment. Now, remember the 14th Amendment, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law and protection of the law, equal protection of the law. But here's the fascinating thing. So you might be listening and saying, well, okay, Father, he said if it's ever determined that the fetus is a person, legalized abortion collapses and you can't have it. Well, who's to say the fetus is a person? Well, that very same government that we have called the U.S. Senate. Listen to this. In 1981, so less than 10 years later, a U.S. Senate Judiciary Subcommittee received this testimony from a collection of medical experts. And you can look this up. This is the Subcommittee on Separation of Powers to Senate Judiciary Committee S-158, their report in the 97th Congress, first session, 1981. Okay, here it is. The official Senate report reached this conclusion. Quote, physicians, biologists, and other scientists agree that conception marks the beginning of the life of a human being. In other words, the fetus is a person. A being that is alive and is a member of the human species. There is overwhelming agreement on this point in countless medical, biological, and scientific writings. Basically, Gary, where there's growth and there's growth in the womb, that implies life. And the church has always defended life. And so the point is, if this is the case, if if the argument for Roe v. Wade admits if the fetus is ever determined to be a person, then you can't have abortion. And then these experts have come and clearly defined life begins at conception, the fetus is a person. Why do we still have abortion? Right. So this is a huge question. And, and, and people say, well, then, Father, why? let's get deeper. Father, why is the church then so staunch on life? Well, because each person is unique, non-repeatable. Our, our value is, is infinite in worth and dignity. Here's the problem. Our society today is telling us that people, their value is based on usability and wantedness, utility, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. People are not based on usability or wantedness or utility. Um, that's utilitarianism. That's a heresy. And ending life in the womb is the ultimate attack against that. In other words, you're saying some are worth living and some are not. Well, who can make that decision? Even God says everybody's worth living or I wouldn't have given you life. You know, so so the human person can't be disposed of for any reason. And here's the last point I'll make, Gary, is this. 
People say, you don't have the right to tell me what to do with my body. You know what? You're absolutely right. I don't have the right to tell you to do with your body as long as it doesn't involve somebody else's body. And now with that baby, we are dealing with somebody else's body. And so the church has always taught you can't decide the fate of life or death of another person unless they willfully possess a physical threat to you. And the baby doesn't do that. You know, even a pregnancy that threatens the mother, and we could talk about that later, um, doesn't, it's not willful. The baby's not willfully um, trying, um, the baby's not willfully trying to harm you. And so this, this becomes a very serious ethical issue, which people say, well, Father, don't get political. It's not politics, it's actually ethics. So there's a lot here to unpack. It's, it's a very important issue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if not the most important issue, because it's yes, if you aren't alive, then you're not entitled to anything. Yeah. You know, all your rights right. are gone. It's the first. It's the first and most primary of all rights. Absolutely. We're chatting with Father Chris Alar, talking about why the church is pro-life. More to come after this. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We are chatting with Father Chris Alar. We're talking about uh, why the church is pro-life. And Father, man, you you unpacked all sorts of really interesting points in the uh, last segment. And uh, I hope I don't throw you off, but I never could understand that uh, the the majority opinion in Roe versus Wade. It seems to me like if we don't know whether or not this is a person, that the prudent thing would be to err on the side of safety and say, Mm -hmm. well, you know, since we're not sure whether there's a human person, we don't want to kill the helpless and innocent, then we ought not to have abortion. But they went the other way, which never made sense to me. And then on top of that, now we've come out with overwhelming, as we just read in that report, overwhelming medical agreement that the life begins at conception. So it begs the question, then why hasn't it collapsed? And and, and the church can argue it even based on rights and reason, or the church can argue it based on the moral and the ethical. And and somebody says, well, Father... um, you know, keep your religious arguments no, because they tie to you know we're we're not we're not just um, spirit we're body and spirit so you know we bring in faith and reason um, we're a rational nature we have an intellect and a will and to me one of the strongest arguments is um, you know by nature everything is created in the image and likeness of God so this is why Satan wants to destroy us. Um, you know, the mystery in the incarnation, basically Christ elevated our dignity because he elevated humanity, um, you know, the, the humanity of the human person now to share in divine life. And he himself, Chris Sparks, one of our theologians here, made a good point. He said, you know, um, Christ took life in the womb. He was an embryo. He was a fetus. Is anybody think he wasn't alive? You know, so, yeah. so, you know, he put his life in the womb of a human, of a human woman. And, um, and so God, 
you know, and Father Alan Alexander here also made a good point. He said, you know, God has given the woman the power and the ability to abort or not. But here's the point. He gave her the free will. You know, by free will, God has put the child at the mercy of the mother. You know, she can smoke, she can drink, she could abort. But the child has no free will in its own preservation or its existence. So basically, this child's at the mercy of the mother. And so now we have, you know, here's the thing. We have a responsibility when somebody is entrusted to us. You know, um, you could even look at the most rudimentary example. What child asked for a puppy and a live dog and a parent's not going to say, do you understand the responsibility? Hmm. You have to walk it. You have to feed it. Nobody's going to say, we're going to get you the dog so you can kill it. You know, nobody's going to say that. Um, You know, we, we, we have to look at, you know, it, yes, it is her choice with free will, but she doesn't have the right to choose to take a life. In other words, you have the choice with your free will to take the life, but not the right. And that choice is incorrect. So, you know, she has the choice to take the life, but actually the right and obligation to preserve it. And so, you know, uh, uh, Chris, another one that Chris Sparks used here was the uh, the point of... Um, you know, if somebody is hanging, you're, you're hiking with somebody in the mountains and they slid over the cliff and you grab them by their hand and they're dangling. Literally, their life is in your hands. Would anybody say, if you had witnesses up on that trailhead, that you're holding on to somebody by their hand and you decide to let them go? You say, you know what, I don't want to be bothered holding on to this person. It hurts my back. Mm-hmm. You just let the person go and they fall to their death. No. The court would say that person's life was in your hands. You had a moral responsibility. You had a moral responsibility to not let go. And that baby's life is in the womb of the mother, and she has that moral responsibility not to let go. So basically when someone is dependent on you, for their continued protection, you have by nature the obligation and the responsibility to protect them. Who would dismiss parents? If you saw a little two-year-old girl running out in the road in the middle of the night, what's the first thing you say? Where's the parents? Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, even if you don't believe in God, you have this responsibility. Well, don't tell me your belief. I don't believe in God. Well, even if you don't believe in God, you have this responsibility. Um, this is this is very important. Um, you know, <clears throat> like I said, back to the, the woman hanging on the over the edge of a cliff. I, I don't have I don't have the right to let go if I'm holding you. I have the choice. I could let you go, but what would anybody say about my choice if I if I'm up there hiking with twenty people and they all saw me holding this person, and I decide I make the choice to let her go. What would everybody say to me? Would they say, well, you know what? It's free choice. You had the choice to let Mildred go. We're really sorry she died, but you had the choice to let her go. No, I'm obligated to hold on. Even if I'm 
flipping. I mean, if you let go on purpose, you're guilty of murder. And so this is what we don't understand in the argument of defending human life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially if uh, you have a motive, you know, <laughs> to uh, let M Aunt Mildred you know, fall to yeah. her death, that your life would yeah. be greatly improved by, <laughs> yes. you know. And you know what? I'll get her inheritance. I won't have to spend any money taking care of her now. How yeah. convenient is that? I can let her go because now I don't have the financial burden. And a lot of people list that as a reason they abort a child. I financially yeah. can't afford it. So what if I let, let her go because I now get her inheritance and I don't have to take, pay for taking care of her? Would anybody tell me that I had the right to choose that? They would put me in jail. They would put me in jail. So how can we have this double standard? And now what's going on is almost, I mean, it's beyond crazy, like New Jersey. The governor there has the, the gall to say that, um, you know, that I'm, I'm Christian and I'm Catholic and I believe in life. But then he just now wants to enact abortions all the way up to the time of birth. I mean, even prior, we at least had some sliver of dignity by saying after a certain point, you mm -hmm. can't abort the baby. I mean, it's bad at any point, but at least we had the dignity to say not after so many weeks. Now they're not even saying that. Now the governor of New Jersey is saying abortion up to any time, up to birth. I mean, what have we become? This is very, very troubling. And so this is what we're trying to raise awareness, and we appreciate you joining us in our Catholic teaching on this, on why the human life is so important. In fact, the bishops, you just said it, Gary, the bishops said this, this isn't just important, it's what they call, quote, preeminent. Hmm. And so we, we have to look at that. Yeah, and uh, what, Father, what do you make of... Um, not only Catholic politicians, but just rank-and-file Catholics who are able to uh, do this kind of double truth where, you know, I, I believe what the Church teaches on life is true, but, you know, I think it's it's also true in the secular sphere that you could do the contrary. Yeah, and so, but there's a misunderstanding or a misconception that we are to separate faith from reason. You don't. Yeah. The Church has taught this from the beginning, faith and reason go together. I am, I am not, I mean, the natural law is the link. Because the natural law tells me taking the life of another is wrong. I don't care if you're Buddhist, Hindu, Hindu, Muslim, Mormon, or Catholic. Everybody knows taking a human life is wrong. It's in the natural law. It's, in, it's implanted in our heart. It's imprinted upon our heart. And so we, we, we know that. So those people, when they make that claim, are outwardly rejecting the natural law. And I don't care what society you're in, under what form of government you're in, no matter what your personal belief is or what religion you are, the natural law cannot be violated. We just can't violate the natural law or we cease to exist as a society. And so when the natural law tells us very clearly that it is wrong to steal, the natural law tells us very clearly it is wrong to have adultery. Every society has an understanding of the moral law that 
killing is wrong. And so when they make that comment, well, I believe personally that the killing a baby is wrong, but not publicly, you're, you're just saying, well, the natural law applies in one part, but not another. It's kind of like saying, um, you know, I have different rules under different circumstances. No society runs that way. We have to have absolute moral truth. And absolute moral truth is that we have to defend human life. And that's why the church is so important. It's the last, it's the last one standing that is, is, is vehemently against abortion in all circumstances. And, um, and that's what they call it non-negotiable. Under no circumstances can it be allowed. So we have to learn from the church and leadership here about why it defends um, the, the, the dig- dignity of human life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I often, you know, try to, whenever I talk to somebody, put in terms of slavery. Uh, somebody wouldn't say, well, uh, enslaving somebody is immoral, but if the slave owner would incur, you know, difficulty in life, they can't go to college or something, then I think yeah. they should be allowed to have slaves. Exactly. I mean, no one would think like that, except when it comes right. to life. And and this is the great lie of um, of of the evil one in our world today. The farther we get away from the sacraments and being in a state of grace, the more easily it is for us to be deceived. Yeah. And so this is what's happening in our world today. We don't, we do not put a primary importance on the education of our children, the faith. Uh, we just don't. And so this is the result. We're, we're reaping what we've sowed. And unfortunately, 49 years ago, we sowed a bad seed. <laughs> so. yeah, absolutely. We're chatting with Father Chris Alar and uh, talking about why the church is pro-life. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. For those who are just tuning in, we're chatting with Father Christopher Alar about why the church is pro-life. And if you can, you want to check out the previous segments because the Father has made some fantastic points and, you know, I have to concur with you, Father. I mean, it is a matter of natural law. I know a lot of atheists who are pro-lifers, and uh, and that's not unusual at all. It really does cross all the different boundaries. And I, I think in a way, it's a way of pigeonholing us to say that, well, that's just your religious opinion, and that doesn't have any uh, weight in the public square. Like, how would we respond to something like that? Well, remember, we we need an objective moral truth, uh, no matter if we're Baptist or Methodist or Mormon or Buddhist or Islamic or Muslim. We need an objective moral truth because then society cannot function. It cannot stand. We need to have an understanding of humanity as a whole that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Certain things are right, like helping one another. Does anybody, no matter what religion you are, say helping one another is not a good thing? We all say it's a good thing. We all have the objective moral truth that it is good to be kind to one another, no matter, you know, what religion you are. Likewise, we all have to have common agreement that certain things are not allowed. Now, if society says it's okay that you get upset with somebody 
you know, um, in the uh, on the highway and you got a traffic jam that you just take a gun out and you say, you know what, I want to clear my way and you start killing people. Nobody's going to claim that that is acceptable due to the circumstances. There's an objective moral truth that we all have to follow. Now, the beautiful thing is that it's there for us. It's called the natural law. It's given to us in our hearts. No matter what religion we are, we have been given this by God. Excuse me. And that is the part of the link between faith and reason. It's the link that gives us to understand that it's not about some doctrine. It's about what's implanted in our heart by our very creator. And you say, well, gee, I don't believe in God. Well, okay, do you believe that society needs to function around some common beliefs? Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's why our laws used to be based on the natural law. That's where there used to be laws in the books um, against sodomy even. Now, that shocks people today. But there were laws on the books against sodomy because it went against natural reason and the natural law. Mm-hmm. Now we're labeling lawsuits if anybody speaks to the contrary of that. And so we've we've dismantled natural law. We've dismantled objective moral truth in the name of political correctness. And the result, all you have to do is turn on one minute of the news and you can see that we are reaping what we sow. And so with the dismantling of the natural law, and the objective moral truth of our society, we are now facing the consequences. Nobody wants to say this publicly, but it's a reality whether you want to face it, you know, acknowledge it or not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, how does divine mercy fit in with, uh, you know, the re- pro-life response? Because in a way, I think part of it is kind of a false mercy where, People just say, well, different strokes for different folks, and I love them anyway. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, we do. We judge. This is where I always stop the confession when I'm hearing confessions with people, and they always say, Father, I was judgmental, and they start going on to the next sin, and I'm like, "Um, hold on one second. We, as Catholics, are called to be judgmental. And people are like, what? They're shocked. We have to be judgmental of actions that are contrary to, to the will of God, um, not of people. We are not judgmental of people. Only God judges persons. When we say we're not to judge, we mean people. In other words, your eternal fate. I don't judge your eternal fate, even if you were part of an abortion. Uh, I don't judge the eternal fate of any woman who had an abortion because I don't know. She might have been scared. She might have been, her husband might have been threatening her. Her boyfriend might have said, I'm going to kill you if you don't have an abortion. So we don't know the circumstances to ever judge the person. But what we can do is we must judge the action, and that is a work of mercy. Admonish the sinner. So I just, I've said this in the confessional. If a a woman says, I've been judgmental, I say, well, if your daughter came to you and said, Mom, drive me to the abortion clinic and pay for my abortion today at 10 o'clock, you can't say... Well, I can't do anything about it because then I'm being judgmental. No, you have to say, honey, I love you. And because I love you, we can't do this mm-hmm. because this is not good for you. This is going to harm you in the long run. That is mercy. 
So being mercy is calling out the action, admonish the sinner. It is being merciful. And the pro-life movement extends not just to the baby, but to the mother. We have to be merciful to the mother. We have to understand the mother needs help. Do you know that um, in New York City, more than half of all black women pregnancies end in abortion? Hmm. And 53% said they were forced. And get this, 80% of those who did it had the abortion said they wouldn't have if they had support, either from the father or from the family. 80% said they wouldn't have done it if they felt they had support. So we have a moral obligation also to support the life of the mother. You know, and all life is val- is is, um, is, uh, is sacred. Well, then somebody might say, well, Father, then why don't we, why doesn't the church put capital punishment as preeminent and, and along with abortion? The reason is twofold. One, first of all, the, 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 the baby in the womb is 100% defenseless. Now, in most cases, we believe that the person put to death is not innocent. They posed a threat if the law worked itself out correctly. They posed a threat to human society. So they're not defenseless. They perpetrated. They were not an innocent victim. That's one thing. Secondly, now there are cases, please, understand that maybe, uh, sadly, uh, an innocent person may be put to death. We understand that. But that's not supposed to happen. That's not the norm. You can't base your society on an exception that might happen. Unfortunately, we need to do everything we can that that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. But the difference is there were 22 people last year put to death by capital punishment. In the world, there was millions that were lost, uh, over a million that were lost to abortion. So we have to understand the significance of just the sheer numbers make it preeminent. Um, And so we need mercy on all life, but yes, especially the defenseless in the the womb that can't defend itself um, and has not made any choices that have been ended up in a consequence of them being, you know, for instance, um, losing their own life. Uh, You know, that's not what a baby has done. So we have to look at these factors to realize there's a difference between the life in the womb and all other life. It's, 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 it's even that much more innocent and defenseless. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's hard to think of an example of anything more helpless and innocent than an unborn child. Right. Um, Right. Yes. So that's uh, just basically comparing apples with oranges is just two different, Mm -hmm. entirely different categories. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that is often uh, brought up and I think more to confuse the issue rather than bring clarity to the issue. Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. And so we have to realize that people, we can't argue a point from a faulty premise. And um, there's a faulty premise that this is my body only. No, you're dealing with somebody else's body now. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with, this is my life. No, you're dealing with somebody else's life now. And so we can't lose that understanding that we're not talking about just you and your choice. We're talking about a third person now. Yeah. And that changes the variables. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Father, we, we have a few minutes left in, in the show, and it, you've done, you guys are doing such great work 
Vladimir Helpers. Uh, I'd like to maybe take a few moments where you could tell us about the things you're doing and how to contact you and all that. Yeah, please uh, join us. Um, several initiatives that we have going on. Um, every uh, every day we release new videos um, on our YouTube and Facebook channels. Our YouTube channel is called Divine Mercy, and our Facebook channel is called Divine Mercy Official. And uh, we put the chaplet up there, rosary, mass. We have our daily homilies. But we also, every Saturday, I do my Explaining the Faith series, which is uh, gotten many, many views on YouTube. We have dozens and dozens of different topics out there that you can find posted. Um, then we also do our EWTN show every week that airs Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. in the East Coast, uh, 3.30 on the West Coast. And we just had an episode last week about the importance of pro-life and actually, Gary, how St. Faustina was given the chaplet of divine mercy to stop abortion. And people don't realize this because St. Faustina, when she saw the angel going to strike at a city in Poland, uh, she, she was given a prayer to say by Jesus. And she said this prayer and it rendered the angel helpless. He was not able to strike. So later, her confessor, Michael Sapochko, asked her, what city was this? And she said, Warsaw. And he asked her, what was the sin that the angel wanted was going to strike the city for? And she said, for the taking of the life of the most innocent, in, in the most innocent um, of life um, in the womb. And he gave her the prayer of the Divine Mercy Chaplet to pray so that that angel didn't strike at the city for its sin of abortion. And in, in reparation, she got several um, uh, abdominal, severe abdominal pains in her stomach that was the pain, Jesus told her, for the mothers that have taken the lives of their children. And she was getting those pains between 8 and 11 p.m. And that is the time they performed the abortions in the city of Warsaw. Hmm. And so few people know that the chaplet of Divine Mercy was first and foremost. Yes, it's to pray at the bedside and for the repose of the souls of those we love who have died. First and foremost, that prayer was given to end the sin of abortion. Wow. Uh, Well, Father, uh, as always, a great program, lots of great information. Where can people go on the web to get a hold of uh, your organization? Is it Marion.org? Yep, yep, or you can visit our YouTube channel, uh, Divine Mercy. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. God bless you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. And that's Father Christopher Alar. And man, great show. And talk about great shows coming up next. Terry and Jesse show High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Bye bye, everyone.